Hi, y'all, and welcome back to Peachy Keen. I'm Vivian Liddell, and this is my podcast. So this is a wrap on 2017. I started the podcast in March, and we've got 11 episodes. Pretty proud about that. I'm still figuring out this podcast thing and working out my own style. I appreciate those of you hanging in with me through the beginning of the process. You know I love Mark Marin, and I basically... I've been using him as a starter guide. He can be really self-indulgent and a constant source of uh, TMI, but that's why I love him. And I've been trying to be more like that myself in the podcast. It's honestly quite scary, but I consider it part of my feminist mission to not edit myself or worry too much. In other words, to have strong opinions. Which brings me to Linda Nochlin. In a June interview with the CAA, which is the College Art Association, Linda Nochlin was asked what her advice was to young artists just starting out. She said, quote, be very, very smart. Write a lot. Have strong opinions. Don't just be a little library worm. And I've thought about that ever since I read it in June especially the part about strong opinions. On it. The day I released our last episode, Linda Nochlin died. The CAA, which is a group that has conferences every year, mostly for teaching artists and spearheads all kinds of related research and opportunities, posted a text-only pic on their Instagram feed, which read, Why have there been no great women artists? Underneath this post, they wrote a little note, something to the effect of R.I.P. Linda Nochlin. Disappointingly, the comment thread under the post went on to respond to this question, why have there been no great women artists, as if the CAA was presenting it for the first time. I assume it was disappointing to the CAA, too, because they removed the post, or either I imagine the whole thing. What I learned from this is, that even people who follow the CAA on Instagram, so mostly teaching artists, don't know about Linda Nochlin's groundbreaking work. She published the essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists, in 1971 in Art News Magazine. Basically, her answer to this question was that, quote, the fault lies not in our stars, our hormones, our menstrual cycles, or our empty internal space, but in our institutions and education, unquote. In other words, she begins the argument that we as women have been excluded from art and art history due to institutional sexism. This is the foundation for feminist theory and criticism in art. This argument is a known quantity to us now, but when she wrote this, there were all kinds of bullshit ideas about women as incapable of great art. I would love to go through the entire article point by point right now. My favorite part is where she breaks down the assumptions behind the idea, the flawed idea of artist as genius. So if you're at all interested in women in art, which I'm assuming you are because you're listening right now, you need to read this essay. In fact, I'm going to put a link to it on the Peachy Keen page right now. And if you read it, not only am I going to give you an A+, for being a good student of feminist art, but you might even get a special reward. Listen to the end and I'll tell you more about that.
For today's episode, I pick up on a thread from my interview with Tori Tinsley in episode six. Way back in June, when I talked to Tori, we discovered we had both been looking at the work of Nashville artist Amelia Briggs. And guess what? I reached out to Amelia after that, and she agreed to be on the podcast. I was so psyched to talk with her. So Peachy Keen went on the road to Nashville for this episode. If you haven't been to Nashville lately, you should go. I love it. I could go on and on about it. Um, Took my kids. We went to Third Man Records. We went to the Parthenon. It's awesome. We also went to visit the gallery where Amelia is the director, David Lust Gallery, and their next door neighbor gallery, Zeitgeist. There are a ton of great art venues in Nashville. And if you want to know more about the Nashville scene, you should check out Amelia's website. She has her own podcast called Confabulate, and you can also find excerpts from other artist interviews that she's done on behalf of David Lust Gallery there on her website. I met up with Amelia in her studio in the evening after she had worked a full day at the gallery to look at her new work and her process. The work of Amelia's that I was familiar with that was making me and Tori drool was her Inflatables series. These are oil paintings that are on irregularly shaped supports, and we spend most of our chat breaking them down. Check it out. All right, nighttime. I never do nighttime interviews, too. Really? This is a first. This is two firsts for me, a nighttime interview and wine during an interview. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I like to have just a little bit of wine because it relaxes me. Yeah. Especially because I've been at work all day, so I feel like my brain's kind of fried. Thank you so much so. for meeting with me after work. No, I, I'm happy to talk to you. I'm glad you made the trip. Yeah, I'm super excited. Um, yeah, me too. So you do a podcast, first of all. Are you doing the We Home podcast? No, I was on the We Home podcast. Okay. But a friend of mine, Erica Chicharoni, is doing that. Oh. And she has, like, funding. You know, that's, like, a full... Um, it's funded by National Endowment for the Arts uh-huh. and some other things as well. I so, saw it on um, Burnaway. Yeah. Yeah. She's been getting a lot of attention, and she's doing... Incredible job. So I, I was on an episode of that podcast, but that's not my project. My friend and I, Ellen Dempsey, who's a graduate student at University of Memphis right now, started a podcast called Confabulate a while ago. Mm-hmm. But we have not been able to keep up with it because we are both so busy. And what is the podcast about? It's just conversations with artists. Oh, okay. Yeah. So some, very um, similar. Similar, yeah. And we, it started kind of as a blog, morphed into a podcast. I think we have maybe only three episodes. Okay. But it's it's kind of just paused for the moment because we don't have time to It's pretty to intense. It, it is you, intense. I was trying to do one a month and I think I'm going to end out. I started in March, so I'm actually a little bit ahead of that um, because I think this is the 11th episode maybe. So I'm going to try for 12, like, wow. right, maybe right wow. at the end of the year. That's incredible. But, you know, I, I mainly don't, you're the only the second person that I've interviewed that's out of Georgia. Mm. Um, and I so far haven't done any, uh, like, Skype interviews. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to do that. It's tricky. I've had a hard time with that. Yeah, I think it's just, to me, I, I think technologically wise, it would might even sound better, but, like, you don't get the little pauses and yeah like the face-to-face I feel like it would be harder that way so my podcast is focusing on women in the south and I like to talk to people a little bit about their backgrounds I told you I'm a Mark Maron fan Mm -hmm. so like I kind of follow his standard (laughs) where are you from what is your childhood yeah um so what where are you from you're not from Nashville I am not so I grew up in northern Indiana Mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere like Amish country 
that is where I grew up and went to high school. Um, my dad is a painter, but he also, that's not his day job. He is an administrator of a nursing home. So he has mm. a, like a nine to five. My mother is a psychologist. Um, but I think growing up with my mom being a psychologist and my dad being very creatively minded, um, he's a poet and he plays music and he paints. That combination, I think, was really good for me. What kind of painting artist. does he do? He does um, representational, but kind of with his own flair. There's some abstractions in there. He paints a lot of... They have a, um, a house in Michigan that they spend some time in that's not right on the water, but very close to the water. It's in a very nice little beach town. Mm-hmm. So he paints a lot of beach scenes. He paints portraits of people, you know, occasionally... So did you go to a lot of museums growing up or art galleries? or Some, yeah. My mom um, certainly appreciates the arts, but she's not one to, like, seek out a gallery or a museum. You know, she's just not really on her radar that much, whereas my dad more so. I don't really have a lot of memories, though, of, like, always being exposed to art. I mean, my dad's art was always around. But did we didn't you watch him paint? Museums. Yeah, certainly. His, <clears throat> his studio was always in the basement and... I mean, it was kind of like a weekend thing for him, you know, so he'd always be down there kind of working on something. So you went to school for painting? Mm-hmm. Not initially. I went to um, Indiana University in Indianapolis, so it was technically called IUPUI. It was Heron School of Art and Design. Mm-hmm. It was where I graduated from. However, I went in thinking I was going to be a psychology major, following in the footsteps of my mother. I quickly found that was not the correct fit for me. So I thought I would go into art education and I would try to teach. Mm-hmm. But I remember sitting in the, like the one of the final meetings before you entered your like core classes where they had videos of students working with like younger students. And I just remember thinking, I don't have the patience or the desire <laughs> to teach young children. I just don't, it's just not, I, just, I don't think that's the right path for me. It just didn't seem like a good fit. So I remember thinking that it would be like the scariest, craziest thing to just get a degree in visual arts. I just remember thinking that was like, like, what are you going to do with that? You know, it was probably my parents a little bit Mm -hmm. influencing that. But I ended up switching to just to visual arts. So I got a BFA in painting. But it was a later in life, a later decision. It took, I did a lap. It took me a little while to graduate Mm -hmm. um, with my undergrad, which I did in 2009. (coughs) <coughs> and then I stayed in Indianapolis. I was working in a bar. I was bartending. Um, so I was making good money, and I just kind of... I don't know if you heard my recent interview on the We Home podcast. No, I, I talked a little bit didn't about listen this. to okay. it. Well, I, I touched I, on this a little okay. bit. But I, I, was, I was a totally different person then. Mm-hmm. I was not focused. I was not driven. I was drinking all the time. I was working in a bar, bartending, making good money, and I just had no real, like, goals. I really wasn't headed in any kind of a specific direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, after grads or after undergrad, that's what I did for a while, and then I think I just kind of slowly found this drive and this passion for making work kind of came back, and I started, instead of going out I transformed my dining room and my little apartment into a studio. I taped plastic down and more and more I would decline to go out to bars with my friends and I would stay home and make paintings, you know, and I just, I was reading a lot more at that time and I just went through this slow transition and I ended up doing this thing where at this point I was working for a distributing company. I was no longer bartending, but still not really in anything related to the arts. And I, I read, kind of abruptly just quit my job and moved to my parents' Michigan house that they weren't living in full time and just 
gave myself six months to commit myself to my art to kind of prove to myself that I could do that or what would come of that. Mm -hmm. I just had this really strong instinct that if I could just get away from everything that was distracting me in Indianapolis and just focus on my work as a visual artist and just give myself that chance that something would come of it. I had no idea what, but I just did it. And so I lived, moved to this little tiny town in Michigan and I felt really isolated and it was a really scary but transformative time for me and ended up applying to grad school Mm -hmm. from that body of work. And where did you go to grad school? I applied to schools all over and I ended up applying to University of Memphis because of my mother. Um, It wasn't a school on my radar at all. I wasn't even really that excited about applying. She was like, just do it, just apply. Is that your mom's... Had she gone to school there? No. No, I think she was just looking for, like, a smaller program that wouldn't put me into an enormous debt. Okay. You know. So she was like, this is... Because... And they offered... um, If you could get one, they offered, like, full-ride teaching assistantships where they would pay your way, and then you could also get two years of teaching experience, which is good because a lot of graduate programs in art give you um, TA experience, but you don't necessarily get to run a class by yourself. So I think she felt like that was also a good thing because then I would possibly have a job that way or it would be easier for me to find a job. But no connection to Memphis whatsoever? No connection to Memphis. Just random. I don't have any family in the South at all. Like, there's no (laughs) connection. So she convinced me to apply and I got accepted and we went and visited and something about Memphis, I just fell in love with it. I think, I remember walking through the halls of the school and I just felt like this is where I need to be. I also met the professor there, Beth Edwards. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she, something about her energy, I just felt connected to it and I just thought I'm going to do it. And so I moved to Memphis. And what kind of work does she do? She does like almost hyper-realistic imagery of now flowers, but she used to do cartoon, cartoony kind of dolls, which I felt really drawn to because at the time I was painting figures mm-hmm. that were kind of at times cartoony. So I did I did a deep dive into your Instagram, like all oh. the way back to your first <laughs> post. And I did, I noticed the figure painting, which I think is, um, you know, there's several things that since I've, since I first talked to you about being on here, you know, first I was just like, oh, these inflatables are super cool. And I think I told you after I met with Tori Tinsley on the podcast, we mm-hmm. both were into your work. And when I went back through, I started seeing all these things that I was like, oh, and she's into this too. And, mm-hmm. um, and I saw that you did figurative art, which I also yeah. used to do. That's and I liked your, um, your older figure painting that you had. I only, I think one or two. There may be like one or two on Instagram. There's not many. Maybe if I was doing like a flashback post or something. So that was what you were doing at the University of Memphis though. Uh, When I started that program, I was painting figures. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mostly women figures. And so what happened after graduation? Did you? Of graduate school? Yeah. From Memphis. So I had been, I had started interning at David Less Gallery in Memphis my first summer of graduate school. And um, it just worked out. David was really great, and he was like, if you want to keep working here two days a week while you're in school, we'd love to have you, you know? So I oh, I continued to work there two days a week. Um, and then, you know, more like four days a week in the summer times or during breaks, all through the rest of graduate school. So when I had graduated, I ha- had that job, but I didn't know, you know, I was kind of a gallery assistant. And I didn't know... If I was going to continue with that job, I just kind of had this intuitive feeling that I should not pursue teaching, which is what a lot of people with MFAs do. Yes. I didn't really enjoy teaching all that much when I was teaching during graduate school, even though I did end up adjuncting a semester 
after I graduated. I just, maybe it was partially too because I was working at the gallery and I just felt really overwhelmed trying to maintain a studio practice and teach and, and then be in graduate school, which can be really a lot of work. Right. Um, but I just didn't, I just didn't want to go that route. And I also had talked to so many professors during my time in graduate school who were like, oh, to get a teaching job in the arts is just so hard, and then they get cut, or they want to hire just adjuncts, and we all know that adjuncts make no money. It's, it's horrible how little money they make. And I just didn't, I didn't want that. So I ended up staying on at the gallery, and I took on more, you know, slowly, I just took on more responsibility and maintained a studio practice. I certainly went through some periods after graduate school where I wasn't really making or I felt really lost about what I was going to do. And this was in Memphis This still. was in Memphis. And you had a, did you have a studio in your house? I did. And are you still figure painting after I'm making, grad school? No, I made the switch into abstraction during graduate school. Okay, so, so my thesis show was abstract, abstract work. And what kind of work was that? Is there anything in here that is exemplary of that work? That this piece, piece, this hot pink piece, uh-huh. I made right after I got out of grad school. So that's interesting. This is a shaped canvas. Mm-hmm. Is it um, stretched onto a panel? Uh-huh. Um, so there's like a piece of wood cut out underneath it. I'm mm-hmm. always, I'm really into Elizabeth Murray. I I'm love assuming her you work. are too. Yes. Um, and this reminds me of her work with this. I've always wondered how she gets her shapes underneath. I've seen in the Art 21 video, if you look, like at one point, she, they carry a big canvas across, mm-hmm. and I'm like That's pausing it, putting it on slow so I, I can use see a the back. You do. I just use a jigsaw, lay it flat, and cut out shapes. Yeah. But and yeah, so you can see how I'm slowly moving towards this. It's definitely kind of like object like. So this was your, your thesis. Show. And what is that? Is that like drapery kind of attached mm-hmm. on the front there? A little yeah. cut out piece of drapery? It's an old curtain that I found at Goodwill. Yeah, so this is super interesting to me because it's clearly painting based um, and is interested in the history of painting. Like I m- immediately think of Elizabeth Murray, which is cartoony. I noticed you use the hashtag cartoon. Oh, I do, yeah. On on your pieces, and I really wanted to talk to you about that and the idea of narrative, because I saw also that you had made this post that you were doing a book, some book arts. What mm-hmm. is that about? So I found this weird vintage book at a thrift store, mm-hmm. And I was really drawn to it because there's all these pictures of cartoons in it. It's like a weird book. It's half in German, half in English. It's mm-hmm. really bizarre. The storyline from what, what I can read is just really bizarre. <laughs> but I was just really drawn to these cartoony. I'm really interested in like vintage cartoons and vintage comics. So it was a really expensive book too, but I was like, I'm, I bought it. And I just started, I thought of this idea that really went with my work as I was going to start editing out bits and pieces of it to just have these like fragments of narrative. So I have this acrylic paint that I'm just going in and I'm picking out certain words that are interesting to me and I'm painting out really the meat of the narrative and leaving behind these little shreds of narrative, which I feel runs perfectly parallel to my work. But this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the book project. Mm. And I want to do the whole thing and then I'd kind of like to scan these at a high res, maybe print them out. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where it's going to go, but... So where did your interest in comics come from? Did you collect comics when you were younger? Or? I did not collect comics when I was younger. And, I, you know, toys were really important to me when I was younger. I always had, like, a little doll or a little toy when I was little that I would carry around. And it's kind of similar to how, 
you know, like little girls will have like baby dolls that they're mothering. It's like this maternal thing, you know. And so I would always have like a little doll that I would carry around and it would be very this like very personal, precious object to me. And I've always been drawn to these like colorful, like beautiful children's imagery. You know, I don't have children, but like I just love, love that. And I... That's something that I've really tried to work through in the last year is, like, why cartoon and comic book imagery? Mm -hmm. And I think it's... I think there's something really interesting to me about the psychology behind the imagery that children are exposed to and the psychology of how what we learn as children really shapes who we are or who we become as adults. Mm -hmm. Um, And I haven't done, like, you know heavy research on this you know I don't have I didn't like write my thesis paper on this or anything I don't have all kinds of statistics to go along with that but I just I think there's something about that that I find fascinating especially when I'm reading like these vintage coloring books that I now kind of collect um the, the language is really strange and it's certainly changed a lot like, just the way women are referred to, oh, kids, yeah. and, like, the roles of, like, mommy and daddy, and how mm-hmm. it's very stereotypical, and... The gender roles are really specific. Gender roles, yeah. It's but how, really how far back are we looking with these books? This is, like, 1950s? Maybe, yeah. So, we've got, like, a... <laughs> the checkout counter, Bobby finds a book. These are very interesting. Yeah, Where are you I finding find these, these things? Like, vintage stores. Mm-hmm. Um, this one I found was already colored in and I was really excited about that. (laughs) Um, they're just so bizarre and interesting to me. And I think it just goes back to like the, the heart of that is like, I'm just interested in how these, like, I'm imagining like a child reading these and how they're like putting together pieces of adult life or what they assume would be adult life. Um, so that's interesting because... In the coloring books, I mean, there's not really a narrative. No. It's like you said, the, the kids are looking at pictures, and they're kind of filling in how they think these relate to their reality. And what did you, what did you call your series? Um, what did it say? Removing narrative? Was that it? Yeah, narrative? removing narrative. Mm-hmm. Removing narrative. And I saw that you had put a quote by Nicole Krauss um, mm-hmm. about... You know, I I don't know. She was trying to say that the... She, I, I don't know. I'm not sure what that quote was about, but it was like... Well, let me see. I wrote down... I have that book in the next room if you want me to grab it. Um, breaking spirit of, of the animal that is otherwise too dangerous to live with. That's what I wrote from the part. You had, like, underlined this part on I think I did underline part of that. And I originally was drawn to that quote because a woman named Kat Ikri did an article on me for Native Magazine. And Uh she quote the beginning of the article, she quotes that book that she was reading at the time. And she drew a parallel between my work. So I was really drawn to that book, and I read it after that. And it's a wonderful book. I recommend it. It's called Forest Dark. Mm -hmm. Um, But she... Kat was trying really hard to, like, get to the core of, like, why I was trying to skew the narrative. And I wasn't just trying to allow the narrative to be, you know what I mean? Because I talked a lot about how I'm taking these images that are that stem from a cohesive narrative. And then I'm, you know, in my paintings, like, they're, they're not representational. There's no, nothing there. And I just didn't have, like, an answer to, for that to her that, that satisfied her. Are you trying to, you're not really trying to... Uh, 
run awry with the narrative, you're like completely obliterating yeah. it. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's no there is no narrative. Yes, absolutely. And and you said you gave up figurative painting before you even finished grad school and mm-hmm. was that that was a decision that you made. I mean, you know, all figurative painting has a narrative. Um Mm-hmm. And to me, it's important to keep a narrative in my work. And I feel like if That's I, interesting. if I, well, you know, I teach all these feminist theory classes mm-hmm. and I think, and especially the more I go into that, I have issues with making my work completely formal because I want people mm-hmm. off the street. You know, you work at a gallery, mm-hmm. people yeah. who are not artists yeah. come in. And if there's no narrative, you really have to explain away, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. So how do you feel about that with your work? That's something that I have struggled with, and it's something that I certainly struggle with in grad school, because as you know, you're, you have to defend your work. You have to say why you're doing this, and that was something that I always had a hard time with, because I'm a very process-oriented painter, and I think that within the last year, I've started to become really comfortable with the fact of just, like, owning the fact that, like, yeah, in some ways, these are simply very formal paintings. Yes. You know, and, and I have finally gotten to a point where I've just been able to own that in interviews or in conversations about my work. I used to try to like hide that or I would make up things that weren't necessarily true (laughs) because I would feel defensive about it. But I was finally like, I just need to be honest about that. Like these to me in a lot of ways are very formal. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about heavy issues necessarily when I'm making these. However, I will say that when you brought up narrative and like how you like your work to be recognizable to someone who maybe didn't study art or maybe you know, they, something about it they'll be able to understand or right. identify with. And I do think that, I do think about that in my work and, like, what am I trying to achieve with these paintings? And I, I, I think of it as, like, I really like to think of these objects that I'm making as something similar to, like, you know, like, if you're shopping at, like, a vintage store or something and, like, you come across, like, an old toy or, like, baby blanket or something and it's, like, really maybe it's stained or it's just kind of like it's it's like a beautiful object but it's just kind of worn it has like all this like history behind it and like I and like this weird feeling of like this connection to it because maybe you recognize something about it from your own childhood or the color or um it's it sparks this kind of nostalgia but you don't know what that history is and there's nothing clearly spelled out there right you know there's not like a story with it and so I really like to think about that when I'm making these. Now, I know that these don't look old or dated, although some of my work that's not here right now, I have tried to make them feel like they were discovered objects, but I've kind of gotten away from that lately. But I I like to think of these as like sparking some kind of recognition in in a viewer about, um, like, so when I was giving a talk about my work, about my show at Red Arrow Gallery, I had this one that's a circle on the wall, and a woman in the audience pointed out that she had this like incredible memory from it because it reminds her of Garfield and she used to mm-hmm. sit on the floor when she was a kid and read Garfield comics and it brought back this memory of her relationship with her father. And like that's my ideal <laughs> viewer interaction. And, and I don't need it to be that specific as Garfield. I wasn't even thinking about Garfield when I made that, but now that I look at it, it does resemble that. So you're really trying to connect with the viewer through process and materials, which yeah. I totally get. I'm yeah. super into that pattern recognition kind of thing. And these are what you call inflatables. Um, I was thinking on the way over here, I know two artists in Atlanta who work with 
deflated things. Really? That's so, interesting. Um, Ron Sanders actually deflates beach balls and paints on them. I like that. That's And then great. Candace Greathouse um, uses balloons that she collects with her son, deflates them, and scans them. Oh, wow. I need to look them up. So yeah. that, this is like the opposite of that. <laughs> and and I was curious, like, even, even the narrative behind that. So they're like puffy, fluffy paintings that you know I looked at part of your process looked like you were creating these things from scratch mm -hmm. or, but you're also using found objects yeah so, so they're cut pieces of panel the foundation of every one of these mm -hmm. is a, a jigsawed out shape in, in a panel and then what I do is I um, then build it up with a lot of times found fabric. I rarely buy canvas. I usually go to like Goodwill or a vintage store or something mm -hmm. and find, I really liked finding fabric with textures. That one right there behind you is actually made of t-shirts that I cut up, which is where that rib comes from in the middle. Mm -hmm. It's the seam of the t-shirt inside out. And so I'm using um, these pieces of fabric and I'm stapling them to the back and I'm stuffing them with stuffing, like what you would use to make a pillow or a stuffed animal. Fiber fill. Yeah, <laughs> and then I am using paper mache on top of that because I need to get rid of the crease, you know, the creases in between. And I also really like to use fake fur because I really like that texture. It That's what this me. is in the mm -hmm. corner. And so this, so this here, do you sew and stuff? I don't sew. I just stuff and staple, stuff oh. and staple, and then I use paper mache to hide the seam. Mm -hmm. And I have to coat it with so many layers of acrylic and sometimes latex paint because it. When I first build them, they look really. They don't look cohesive at all. Like, you can tell that something was just stuffed and stayed, you know, right. and I try to lose that so it looks like an object. And I just, layers of paper mache, I sand it down and another coat of thick plasticky paint until I can kind of get rid of that. And do they always hang on the wall? Um, not, yes. Every one that I've made lately has hung on the wall. I did make a giant rug piece that I put on the floor that was actually part of my thesis show, and I've been thinking about making more rugs like that mm -hmm. that would maybe sit on the floor although the one behind you that sits on the floor that little table oh right <laughs> that would be the only exception really that's of something i've made recently so how long have you been doing these for a couple of years i mean really since i got out of graduate school i think one of the first couple things i made out of graduate school were small inflatables that were around that size that pale blue one it's only recently, within the last year, that I've started to make these larger inflatables. This one that's behind you is really interesting to me because it seems so different than the other ones. When did you make this? Is it still... It's it's done. Ooh. So this... Actually, both of these pieces were part of my MFA thesis show. Okay. So this is all um, older work on this wall. This is older wall. work, yeah. This is just a piece of fake fur that I sewed and then coated in latex paint. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. Oh. There's actually no panel behind this one. Actually, you can see Ooh. the back. That's fun. Yeah. So this is a really old piece, and I just, I never want to depart with it, so I just, <laughs> I keep hang on to it. I think this is probably, I like this piece because it reminds me of, like, I can see a clear line between how I got from here to where, you know, it was mm -hmm. like a really it's transitional a transitional piece for me. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And, it, you know, I can see where you your materials are becoming kind of... Um, more you and less obvious where they came mm -hmm. from over time. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of this, everything starts to, be, they look like rafts. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I heard um, that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they look like floats or rafts. And what is this texture in the one here that looks like kind of basket weaving on the yeah, interior of it? That's this really weird fabric I found at this really weird. Um, it's kind of like a big lot store, but mm-hmm. like vintage. It's like a cross between big lots and Goodwill. Um, I, I just found this weird fabric and I was really drawn to that texture and I, I'm always excited to find new fabrics cause I never know how they're going to look when they're coated in paint. Mm-hmm. And so that one, the, all of those little bumps remained. And at first I wasn't sure if I should try to get rid of that, but then I decided that it's cause it looks very dated to me. The fabric was very dated looking. Yeah. So none of these, you can see the original fabric at all. Mm-mm. Um, and I'm curious from a feminist point of view, like, what what really interests me about your work is this kind of overlap between these fiber materials, but they're clearly to me painting. Mm-hmm. There's no, uh, you know, I have struggled with being called a fiber artist. I really mm-hmm. don't like that term mm-hmm. at all. I feel like it's not appropriate for me. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's I, interesting that you like don't like that. That's interesting. Yeah. Does you, does anybody? Nobody. No ever one's says ever that said to you. that to me. Because actually. your work is, you know, yours doesn't have any clear um, sewing in it. That's true. Which mine does. Yeah. And um, I'm actually doing straight up painting right now because I'm like I'm a painter. Damn it. <laughs> I've seen <laughs> that on Instagram. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah. So yeah. so this stuff is, I mean, it's stuffed and it's mm-hmm. clearly got material under there. Was there any kind of you, you mentioned like childhood and mothering and dolls and things like that, but do you consider there to be a feminist content to this work because of the materials that you're using? You know, I have been asked that before, and I think I am a very strong feminist myself, and I don't, but I, to be very honest, I don't think about that when I'm making these pieces. You know, I think it would be false for me to say that I'm thinking about making some kind of a feminist statement with this work. I have been told that the work feels very female, you know, which I think is interesting because I don't, some of these pieces even feel very masculine to me, Mm -hmm. but I really don't think about them in terms of gender. I mean, I'm sure that that is there subconsciously because of my obsession with painting, you know, women. And I talked a lot about recently about how when I spent the six months in Michigan, you know, before I went to grad school and I was really trying to get to the core of what I was interested in, in making. And it was all these images of women. And I was thinking about, a woman's loss of identity. I was thinking about my mother who found out she was pregnant with me when she was in grad school and had to drop out and like the burden sometimes that is only put on women of being a mother, you know, and I was just, I was thinking and hashing through all of those things. And I don't think about those things as, as regularly when I'm making this work as I used to, but I think it's, it's there. It's just, you know, there's nothing, I can't say that when I'm in here making these, this work, I'm thinking about that. But you're, you know, there's a process to it where you're going out uh, thrift storing, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that my mom is a thrift store shopper. So that's (laughs) like, and when I had her start buying fabric for me, I realized like, I hate shopping, but here I am engaging in this process that she trained me to be a shopper. Yeah. You know, and now it's in my work. Yeah. Um, Although I try to farm it out and make her do the fabric picking out for me. But like here you are, you're going to a craft store, you're going thrifting to buy materials. So you're doing these kind of things that are like, uh, and in my experience, related to the domestic sphere Mm -hmm. as part of your material gathering process. But then when you come in here, it's just painting. Yeah. 
pretty much. And it's interesting that you said that you staple straight to the board because that's stretching a canvas. Yeah, it is. Rather it than is. sewing. You know, and I, I hope to kind of flush that out more, you know, and, and exactly where that, because I have been asked that before and I just, I don't have a solid answer for how these speak to that. Because anytime I try to come up with one, it feels false. But I think that, I think that it's certainly there because of what I have been interested in. It's interesting because um, I saw that you were reading Joan Didion, and she's been on my list of people to. I never have read anything of her, and and she's always been on my list. I was afraid because the you know the last book was very sad. Yeah. And I didn't want to read it. Yeah, it was really it's hard to read. Yeah. And I saw that you were reading Slouching Toward Bethlehem, and that's on my um my podcast, my Audible. And I listened to the first story today because I knew I was going to be talking to you. And I was like, let's see what's going on. She's recently read Joan Didion. I've just listened to it twice in a row. So Yeah. Okay. So you're thinking about it. I are you a big reader? I am a big reader. Mm-hmm. I try to read often, but sometimes I have to revert to audio- audiobooks when, mm-hmm. I'm moving, when I'm getting ready for a show or something because I just don't have time to read. You know, with a nine-to-five job, it's hard. Um, but I do try to read a lot. Because it relaxes me and it's it always feeds my work. Certainly. And that slouching towards Bethlehem is like a, a it's like journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I what th- what's interesting to me I right before I listened to that I had listened to Gloria Steinem's Outrageous Acts mm-hmm. and Everyday Rebellions. Have I've been you? kind of wanting to, to do that. I haven't read it yet. No. So that was another. I commute, so I have all these audiobooks and I catch up on all all of this in my commute. And what's really interesting to me is that Outrageous Acts was 1983, and that Joan Didion is 1968. Yeah. And the Outrageous Acts, to me, like, sounds exactly like the Joan Didion. Wow. It's like a, a kind of personal narrative to journalism, putting, you know, it's not, uh, the, the Gloria Steinem is more personal, actually. I mean, she makes a lot more commentary than Joan Didion did. But, like, the voice to me kind of sounds the same. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there was a, dine- a direct connection there between those two. But I definitely would recommend that Gloria Steinem. The first one in there is, like, about when she went undercover as a Playboy bunny. <laughs> it is hilarious. I love her so much. I don't know why I haven't read or listened to her books yet. I need to do that. It's reminded me of the Joan Didion. So you might I'm sure I would love it then. Like it. Yeah. Um, but your, your work, you know, I'm wondering, you, so you have these, you have this book project that you're doing and you have these books that you're looking at mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm sitting here with these prints also. I'm yeah. looking, so you, these are, are these like printed from the computer? How do you show these? Are you, I, well, I show them, I usually have them framed or that's okay. how I've showed them in the past. Um, they're drawings that I make on the computer. They're digital sketches uh-huh. that I use a fabric company to, they print them out. And lately I have been printing, as you can see behind you on Minky, which is like a baby blanket texture oh, because it, oh it? yeah, of course, Ooh. because it feels so connected so to my work. Yeah. And then these are little squares like quilting squares. Uh huh. But you frame these I individual frame squares. Have I, you ever thought of connecting them like a quilt or something? I have thought about that, and that may be something I do in the future. It's probably not something I would do anytime soon, but I, I kind of just treat them as photography. Like, I print them out in limited editions. But it's so weird that you get them printed on this super soft, blanky material. Yeah, it just felt but, so much more related to my work to have this, like, almost fake fur kind of feeling. 
Oh my gosh. And I just think the texture does a lot for the image. It's so like a lovey, like yeah. my kids got <laughs> like these little blankets when they were teeny, teeny babies that were really just for touching and like self-soothing. <sighs> so they're not to cover them, but that's what these remind me of. Yeah. They're like the little blankies. But then you frame them where nobody can ever touch them. That's something I've struggled with. And I think that the next time I show them, I would like to find a more unique way to display them to, to where they're not just hanging on the wall, but so that you can get more of the experience with the texture. I haven't quite figured that out yet. So you've t- this one that I'm looking at is like, speaking of removing narrative, like it looks like the center of the image is just taken out. Mm-hmm. And there's stuff around the edge that looks like maybe it's a doorway or a tree or something. So like the first thing the viewer is going to do when they come up to these is try to figure out what was removed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's, is that, that's not happening in your inflatable paintings. So not much. as much. I'm certainly referencing that kind of imagery with these lines but yeah it's not this it's not quite the same the imagery that you do in the paintings are you doing those on the computer first no i am just kind of usually how i begin drawing this imagery on the paintings is i usually rip out scraps of these comic of not comic books these coloring books or i'll look at like a zoomed in kind of area and i'll just kind of really just loosely freehand with like an acrylic marker and that's how the image first begins so it's, I don't, I don't know, I'm interested in this, re- still, I'm still trying to get to the heart of this removing narrative thing here, <laughs> because, um, you know, I'm like, why, why remove the narrative? But on these pieces, there isn't anything removed, but there's still no narrative, mm-hmm. because they're so abstract that, that when I look at all of them, I can barely see anything that's recognizable. Mm-hmm. Um, like that top one over there, look, I feel like I can see a face, but I'm not sure that that's actually there. I think I'm inventing it. Mm-hmm. So I can't look at a single thing and say, that's a tree or that's an ear. Like, it, you must have really tried hard to make yes. them unrecognizable. When something starts to become too recognizable, I usually paint it out or alter it. Because I, I really just, I really like this idea of having something that, like, brings you so close to recognizing it. And it feels familiar, but you really can't put your finger on it. So... I've been looking at a ton of de Kooning lately, really? which is not, I've never liked him before, yeah. but I'm trying to do some uh, paintings of male figures and I want them to be super abstract. So That's I have a good a, person to look at. Yes. Yeah. And so I, ha- I, yeah, I'm really getting into his work right now. And there's such a balance when you're trying to make an abstract figure, you know, with mm-hmm. going, I mean, his stuff is, it, it, it goes in and out of being recognizable but you can always get lost and forget what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I said you must be trying really hard because it's like to to completely rid yourself of any kind of figurative elements is actually kind of difficult to mm-hmm. do, Yeah. Um, yeah. I think. But, you know, and I, it's funny because I immediately thought Elizabeth Murray when I looked at your work, and I know she was a huge de Kooning fan. That's um, interesting. And she did look at his work and specifically try to like blur out things, like scratch away things, like mm-hmm. like he did when she was working. Hmm. Um, I'm wondering who, what other artists are you looking at, or do you think about when you're um, not working? I'm always so bad at remembering artists' names when I'm asked this question. I should have my sketchbook with me. 
I mean, of course, you know, this is such a stereotypical answer, but Philip Gustin was huge for me in oh, graduate I love school. Him. I feel like everyone, I feel like so many, I've been told from professors, like, stop saying Philip Gustin because everybody, like, everybody quotes that, so I almost hesitate to say him, but of course I was obsessed with him in graduate school. I think I read, like, every book, any book I could get my hands on about mm-hmm. his work. Well, he's very interesting talking about his yes, work. Yes, and that, that movie, I don't know if you saw the movie, yeah. oh, God, he was crucial to me. Um... You know, I've looked a lot at um, Francis Bacon. Oh, I studied him a lot. Oh, my gosh. You know? So I just finished going down a YouTube uh, wormhole of Francis really? Bacon videos, <laughs> like, last week. He's I feel like you have so much in common with you in terms of, like, yeah. artists that I'm interested in. <laughs> yeah. But, like, and I just put a really horrible mouth on one of these men oh. paintings that I'm doing. I think, did you post an Instagram post about that? I think I saw it. I posted it in my stories. It was really intriguing. I was I'm like, sc- what is that? I'm scared to... <laughs> Because I'm getting, it, it's more figurative than anything I've done in like 10 years. Yeah. And I'm not quite ready to put it on my real Instagram page yet. But <laughs> I, my husband saw it and he was like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> that thing is scary, Vivian. And I was like, it's Francis Bacon. Good. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, it's supposed to be scary. Yeah. But, you know, Francis Bacon, like, he's, what a character. Yeah, he is a character. And his, um, like, you know, he met his boyfriend because his boyfriend was a cat burglar i didn't know that and he felt like came through his roof and what? yes and and this is his like this, long-term partner yeah his <laughs> his long t- the guy who committed suicide <sighs> that he made the paintings about so i went my husband was at work the other night and i watched like four hours of francis bacon oh, videos and i was like i'm gonna have nightmares for sure yeah. but you know he had w- one of the things was this guy fell through his roof and he, apparently the story is he was like I'm either going to call the police or you go to bed with me. <laughs> and that's... That's a way to meet someone. That's how he met his partner. I love that, though. That's, but that's it's just so Francis Bacon, of course. It's so dark. But, you know, for, he's he's an interesting one, too, because his stuff is... I mean, it's definitely got a narrative. Yeah. And there's the figures. But, again, it's like that de Kooning territory when you're, like coming in and out of abstraction and narrative and there's never a solid ground to rest on to feel mm-hmm. like you feel you can never get comfort yeah from looking at those images because they're constantly pulling you in and out mm-hmm. which is to me a really interesting place oh, yeah. to be in. no me too where you're kind of going back and forth it's funny because you mentioned francis bacon and you know elizabeth marie the same thing she's like you know i've heard her talk about her work and she doesn't want to go she doesn't want to tell you what the narrative is. Yeah. But there's a narrative. There is a, yeah. <laughs> I, I love, I am love work where it feels a little unsettling too. And I feel like with my work, I'm always trying to hit that line where it's happy and it's bright and it reminds you of a toy or a comic, but there's something a little darker there. Yeah. And that's definitely something that I strive for. So that's really interesting to me, too, because that's something I also am very obsessed with in my work. And I use materials that are very feminine. I told you I didn't like fiber artists. I'd never... The term pretty to apply to art makes me upset also. Yeah, yeah. And so you're using these pastel colors. Um, and this, you know, this is not pastel, but it's hot pink. Mm-hmm. So speaking of what is traditionally called feminine, mm-hmm. you really get into that territory where you could very easily be, I feel like, dismissed. Uh-huh. For being, I mean, yours, no. For being too feminine, you For mean? being too feminine, mm-hmm. if it starts to be too much, too fiber-arty. pretty. Too pretty. Decorative. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So you, yours, but yours never gets into decorative 
territory. I feel like it's clearly not. <laughs> but it's not, at the same time, it's not, um, you know, sometimes I try to get purposefully ugly. Yeah. But I don't feel like you are being, like, disruptive with it. I don't feel like I have. And I, I used to. I used to make, right kind of in the cusp in graduate school when I was transforming into making more abstract work or I was letting go of representation in my work, I was, like, gouging out pieces of the canvas and I was, like, sewing mm. back into it. Like, a lot of it was really unsettling. And I don't know, I don't know if this work is going to slowly kind of go in that direction or not. I think mm -hmm. I like the fact that on the surface, when you immediately quickly glance at it, it's like seductive in a way with the color mm -hmm. and the pastel and the plasticky feel of the inflatable. And then you kind of spend some time with it and maybe there's something unsettling. So I, I don't know if I'm going to be, if I'm going to allow that to happen. Yeah, this, the un, it's like you said, the unsettling part, the longer I sit in here, the more sinister they look to me. And I think it has to do, well, for me, it does have to do with that inflatable raft thing a little bit, like life raft. Yeah, like a <laughs> life raft or a kid's pool Yeah, that's like not functioning as it should be. I did almost drown when I was a kid. Oh. So maybe like, and I have memories, flashbacks of that sometimes. And was it an inflatable pool? No, it was an in-ground pool. It was at my uncle's house and oh. I like... Nobody noticed me, and I was like going under and trying to. I was it was bad, and obviously I was I'm fine, but um, it was a really traumatic experience, and I've never actually thought about that in relationship to my work until just now. But when you said when you kept saying pool inflatable and that they were sinister, I immediately had that memory again. Hmm. Deep. <laughs> it's getting real. It's getting real. <laughs> but I mean, to me, they do have this sinister. I mean, you're looking at children's books. They have this, like, inflatable kids' pool nostalgia that has been covered up by images that are childlike. So I really, when I look at them like that, but they're not they're not the bright colors of a kids' pool. And also, they're not symmetrical. Yeah. So that's disturbing a little bit. When you The longer you look at them, like, I, I keep looking at this one because the there's, a, you know, it's four sides, like, almost a square... But the right side, the part that you would expect to be on the edge that's raised up like the inflatable fluffy part, is pushed in. Yeah. So it's like um, like it's been bumped by something. Yeah. That's something I think about a lot is how to avoid symmetry. Get close to it, but avoid it. And they're a little off. That's something I really think about a lot in these. Something a little bit off what you would expect it to be or expect it to do. And I do think when you said the word sinister, it reminded me that like, I really like to think of these as like characters, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they don't have like a specific narr narrative, but like, I like to think of them as like these characters having this like personality similar to what I was talking about. If you find some weird old object toy or something in a vintage store, like there's this character to it. And I do kind of think about that when I'm kind of painting these or building them up. So you don't think of an, I mean, do you think the thing develops its own character as it goes? Yeah. I mean, it's very process oriented. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and then two, the two process 
like when I, the process of building the sculpture and the process of painting are very separate you know like it's very much just about like building this sculpture when I'm first building the inflatable and I have to, and I go through this I have this long relationship with it because I'm coating it and coating it with paint I'm letting it dry fabric takes forever especially fake fur to soak in the paint and build it up to that texture you know mm-hmm. I mean weeks and weeks and weeks of just coming in here and just coating it again and then when it's all done and sanded and ready then I it's like I switch into this whole other process and, and you, then I start to think about that. So this one is getting ready to paint on mm-hmm. over here. Yeah, it's close. It's not quite there, but it's close. Yeah. So how many do you usually have that are in this stage that aren't painted on? Like, I mean, several. I like to have a lot of things in process mm-hmm. in progress because I tend to get stuck or I don't like to overthink something too much or like sometimes I'll ruin painting because I'll like it probably should have been left alone, but I'll go back into <sighs> it or I'll overthink it or I'll just yeah. if I'm in a negative mood or feeling insecure, <laughs> I come in here and I'm just like. Ugh. You know, and then I look back at images and I'm like, oh, I had hit it three paintings ago. Why did I do that? Um, so I like to, so that I can just freely move around. And if I start feeling like that, I can just set something aside. It's um, funny that you say that because I think about that a lot. Like if you don't have, I have to like psych myself up to paint. Yeah. Like you have to really be in a state where you're not insecure. And yeah. you feel like, um, I feel like it's like the painting knows like shark in the water if you're bleeding. Yeah. If yeah. you come in bleeding, it just takes you yeah. down. It's you true. Know? I've destroyed paintings that I've looked back at, and I'm like, that was an awesome painting. But, like, I was just feeling insecure or down or, like, stressed, and I just came in. I was like, this was crap, you know, and then that's the worst. It's, it's hard to maintain that level, you know? It is. I find it easier working with objects than with just a flat painting. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like it because it's so quick to destroy a, pl- a painting like, you can just come in and one day, like Philip Gustin says, yeah. and like, it's a perfectly good painting, and then it's completely different in, like, yeah. an hour. You're like, this is brilliant. And then you go to bed and you wake up and you're like, that's awful. What was I thinking? Why did I post that to Instagram or something? Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. But that's that makes me think also of, like, the, you know, I, always, I often tell my students that I think of painting like a wild horse, which reminds me of that quote that, you had reference from um, Nicole Krauss about the animal of narrative, but I think of painting like that, like a wild animal, and if you fully tame it, it's not so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you want to be able to ride the horse. Yeah. But you can't, like, completely take its personality away from it. Yeah. And I think that's why it's, like, a, a weird balance. Yeah. Because if you come in with too much control, <laughs> that's how I feel. It's true. Yeah. Or, like, if you finish it too much or something, like, I mean, not finish it too much, but, like, you try to resolve it too much. Yes. Like, you're saying it kind of dies in a way, almost, sometimes. Yeah. It's... Or, such... like, you're too comfortable. Like, I've found that, like, paintings that I'm, like, too comfortable with, like, I'm like, oh, that's, you know, that's it. And then, like, they're not as interesting looking back later as some of the ones that I was not so comfortable with. Or they felt a little out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have that same experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It happens every like, day. Like, you're almost embarrassed to show it, but then, like, weeks later, you're like, oh, this is good. Like, Sometimes it takes you know? years for me. Or years, like, yeah. Sometimes. I will hide things, and I'll be like, what is that? And then years later, I'll be like, that's the best painting I made that yeah. whole year. But it's funny how it takes you so long sometimes to recognize that. It's like you're too close to it. Yeah. You know? That's the sucky thing about art. Like, yeah. I feel like I, I have very little judgment. I, I can look at somebody else's art immediately. I mean, that comes from teaching, too. Yeah. And seeing yeah. so much art 
I'm going to say. Young so many, yes, yes, people who are just starting so out. Who are really hashing it out. Yes, yeah. and so yeah. you see a lot of that, and you're like, oh, you know, you see the same kind of things over and over again, but then it's so easy to make those same mistakes in your own work. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, yeah. Yeah. I think teaching is great in that way, though. You know, like, I do miss it, kind of, like, seeing that, mm-hmm. that enthusiasm, and then, like, those beginning things of fleshing things out. And finding your own voice, which takes a, it's really hard to do that. It takes a long time, I feel like, to get comfortable with that. I mean, I still don't feel like I'm quite there. You know, like, it takes so long to really flesh that out. Yeah, it takes a really long it's time. It's fascinating. Some of us longer than others, unfortunately. <laughs> well, um, Amelia, thanks so much for having me into your studio. Yes. We've been chatting for, like, 53 minutes, so I think my husband will probably be back pretty soon. No, thank you kids. so much for making the trip. I, and I love your work. I'd love to, if yeah. I'm ever in Georgia, I'd love to come see Absolutely. your studio. Come drop by. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was fun. Thanks again to Amelia Briggs for taking a little time out during this holiday season to chat with me. For you all who would like to see her work in person, Amelia has an upcoming show at Lipscomb University in Nashville. It's a three-person show titled The Weight of Play that runs from the 22nd of January to the 10th of March. The opening reception will be Monday, January 22nd from 6 to 8 p.m., Amelia will also be showing in Louisville, Kentucky later on in 2018, so be on the lookout for that. You can find links to Amelia's webpage and Instagram page, images of our studio visit, and links to other pages related to today's episode on the Peachy Keen page at VivianLiddell.com. That's V-I-V-I-A-N-L-I-D-D-E-L-L.com. You'll find a link to Linda Nochlin's essay, so you can complete today's assignment. Remember that? That's right. I'm giving you an assignment. First, you read Linda Nochlin's Why Have There Been No Great Women Artist. After you read it, you find the Instagram post for this episode with the selfie pic of me and Amelia. Then, be the first person to answer the following trivia question in the comments of that post, and I'll send you a free peachy keen button. Here's the trivia question. For today's assignment, list two specific reasons why there have been no great women artists, according to Nochlin. So you can't just say because of institutional sexism. What's a specific example of institutional sexism mentioned in the article? Okay, have at it. If you've enjoyed these first 11 episodes of Peachy Keen and would like to help support the podcast, I encourage you to leave a review on iTunes or consider donating by looking at Peachy Keen on Patreon.com. For our next episode, we'll be back in Athens, Georgia, talking about murals and street art. Until then, I hope you all have a lovely New Year's Eve, and that your start to 2018 is Peachy Keen.